Heavenly Father, as we stop to consider your word now, please speak to us. Fill our hearts with comfort in knowing your work in us and fill our minds with dedication to live your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we consider 2 Thessalonians 3, here's the question I want to start with. When should you shun a Christian? When should you choose to no longer have anything to do with a particular person who claims to follow Jesus? Stop speaking to them. Stop spending time with them. Stop eating with them. Stop inviting them to the things that you are doing or responding to the invitations they make. It's a question that even as I ask it, I feel uncomfortable. I mean, it, it, it feels like the stuff of cults, right? It, fe- it feels like, I don't know if you've, you've heard the horror stories of the people who were all in, were invested in this community, this religious group, this Christian church, only one day to run afoul of whatever rule it was and be cut off. I've heard some pretty horrible stories of people who poured their life into the church, whose social networks were there, whose support networks were there, whose children had their friends there, almost from one day to the next, to be completely barred. They won't answer a phone call. They won't talk to me. They won't help me. I've been shunned. It's a a fascinating question that the Bible doesn't shy away from. There's a handful of passages that I can think of that speak about it. You can go and look them up later if you want. Um, if, If you're writing and you're quick, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 John... Titus 3, Matthew 18, and Romans 16, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now, most of the rest I can understand. They, they talk about individuals who are false teachers, for example. If there's someone among you who is standing up and preaching a gospel other than the gospel delivered to us, that person, kick them out, have nothing to do with them. They're trying to lead you astray. You can understand that one, right? Uh, It talks about Christians who are living in sin and who will not repent. If there is a Christian who is, and in the case in 1 Corinthians, who are sleeping around or having sex with his mother's wife, just sordid, sordid individuals, if they won't repent, then shun them so that they might realise the severity of what they're doing and come back. I can understand those. Personally, I feel like I've only ever known one person who so clearly fit Romans 16 and 2 John that I thought, well, you know what, actually, I need to stop having anything to do. You you just want to cause division. That's all you are interested in. 2 Thessalonians 3, though, is not what you'd expect. Out of the commands to shun Christians, this one has something unusual. Now, we're going to come to it, okay? That's, That's kind of where we're headed. But I want to start where Paul starts in 2 Thessalonians 3 with a bit of a reminder 2 Thessalonians, as we've read it, has put me in mind of a sermon. Uh, He's done all of his theology at the start, he's done a teaching about God and about people, and in this chapter he gets to the application, the practical, therefore, go and do. But, like most good preachers, he can't help but give just another little summary, another little recap, before he moves on to the go and do. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of chapters, the last couple of weeks, you'll remember that Paul has been at pains to point out to the Thessalonians all the things that God has done. There's been very little about them. I mean, he's been very praising of them. You guys are doing really good because of what God is at work in you to do. 
He reminded them that they were saved only because God had chosen them, if you remember last week. God chose you from the beginning. They accepted the gospel only because God's Spirit was at work to sanctify. You didn't believe the lies, you believed the truth, just because God was kind to you. They were going to receive glory, they were going to get the glory that belongs to Jesus Himself. Isn't that incredible? Only because that was God's work when Jesus returns. Chosen, sanctified, gospel, made worthy of the calling of God, strengthened, encouraged, all of these things had happened to the Thessalonians by God's work. Such that, as their faith was flourishing, as their love was increasing, as they were persevering and standing firm, as they were holding fast, they were called to live out God's work. The power that we have is the power of the gospel, and that's it. The lives that we live, we live to the glory of Jesus, and that's it. The vision that Paul wanted to give these Thessalonians is every day to wake up and think, God is at work, so I will be at work. God is doing His purposes in me and through me, so I better get out there and live His life. Have a look with me at verse 1 as Paul brings it to bear in his own life. In addition, he says, brothers and sisters, on top of everything else I've already told you, pray for us. Now, if we just pause there for a moment, what do we put in there? Hey, how can I pray for you? And what do we put in? Well, I've got the doctor's appointment coming up, and, uh, well, the exam is in two days' time, and things at work are a bit rough, and the family and the kids, and I'm, I'm cold and my house is cold, so pray I can get warm. And right, th th That's the sort of thing that fills our prayers. Now, Paul is so captured by this vision of being on about what God is on about. Look what he says, pray for us that the Word of God may spread rapidly and be honoured, just as it was with you. Pray for me, something that's not about me. Pray for me, something that's about God's kingdom. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not all have faith. Oh, fair enough, he does want, if possible, to be spared the persecution they have. But I take it he wants that, so that the word can spread. But once again, it's all God's work. Verse 3, the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and guide you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. We're confident. Because it's God's work. Because it's God's work, we have every trust that you guys, you Thessalonians, are going to keep growing in faith. You're going to keep growing in love. You're going to stand firm in Jesus. That wonderful prayer back from chapter 1, right? That God would put His strength, His might behind your works prompted by faith. We have confidence that God's going to do it. And so you will stand and you will grow and you will obey. And this is where he turns then to these commands, to this application. We have confidence that you will do what we command and then verse 6, now we command you, brothers and sisters. Right, so he spent the whole letter so far setting out the theology. Now he turns to the therefore go and do. What is it that they are going to obey? The commands in this chapter, I think, are really very simple. There's four of them across four verses. They're kind of the same command, spelt out in different ways. And they're fairly straightforward to understand, but they have very radical implications for us. 
I want to tell you the what, what the commands are. I want to tell you about why they're supposed to live this way and how they are to live. Have a look with me at the commands, first of all. Verse 6. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother and sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. Not quite what you'd expect, is it? Shun, keep away from, have nothing to do with Christians, brothers and sisters, I mean, who are false teachers, yes, who are lost in sin, yes, who are causing division, yes, no, who are idle, not idle as in the statue, idle as in don't do anything, won't work, are lazy. Or come down to verse 14, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Not as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Have nothing to do with him. Warn them that their behaviour is unacceptable in the way you relate to them. Right. So if anyone is being idle, shun them. Therefore, verse 10... In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. Or verse 12, we command and exhort such people, the idle people by the Lord Jesus Christ, to work quietly and provide for themselves. Do not grow weary in doing good. That's a simple command, isn't it? Work! Oh, and if there are those among you who won't, then make sure that they know that that's not okay. Be like me, Paul says, verse 7, listen to the example he set for them. You yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We didn't eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we laboured and toiled, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It's not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you, so that you would imitate us. He had the right to be supported. Right? The Bible is very clear that we ought to provide for those who labour in leading and teaching us. That, that's very consistent and normal biblical teaching. Paul could have come and said, right, my work is to proclaim the gospel to you and I expect that you will enable me to do that work. But he said, on purpose, we didn't ask that of you. Because we wanted to be an example to you of working really hard, of providing for yourself. I wonder if it was a specific issue for the Thessalonians. Because in, in 1 Thessalonians, he kind of picks up on this idea as well. I wonder if there were a bunch of people in this church who were just lazing around. Maybe, maybe it was related to Jesus coming back again. It could, I mean, you can imagine it, right? Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Why, why would I bother going to all of the effort? I've got to get my resume put together. I've got to go to job interviews. Ugh. That's even if you get an interview, right? You apply for 32 jobs and only one of them responds. And then you do first round interview and then you've got to do second round interview. And you're like, man, what is going on here? And then if you do happen to get the job, then you've got to go and work. Why would I bother doing any of that if Jesus is coming back tomorrow? I've only got to make it through today and then poof, I'm off, I'm gone, right? 
It's happened all through history. In the late 80s, there was the South Korean Dami mission. There was another one of these, Jesus is about to come back and we've predicted the time and date. And South Korea made it illegal to belong to this group because so many people were quitting their jobs. Like, it, it, it got to the point where the government had to intervene and make it illegal because of the impact it was having on the economy, that so many people were just like, Jesus is coming back, why bother working? Maybe, we we don't know for sure. But it's a very clear command, isn't it? Don't be idle, work. Now, let's just be clear for a moment here. I don't think that he's talking to people who are disabled, that is, people who are unable to work. He's also not talking to people who want to work, but there is no work available for them. These are people who have the right mindset, the right attitude, they are willing to work. The problem is with those who could and who should, but who will not. We need to be careful, but we also need to be honest. It's very easy to paper over sinful motivations. Oh, it's, it's, it's my circumstances, my past, my history, the things that have happened to me, my ability, my... Well, we need to be very careful. Right, the command, work. And if there are those among you who will not, help them see their sin. Why? Why is Paul so concerned about them working? Come and have a look at verse 11. I've got four reasons why he issues these commands. Verse 11, the first one is because idleness leads to being a busybody. Verse 11, we hear that there are some among you who are idle... They are not busy, but busy bodies. This is a good turn of phrase, isn't it? They're not busy, but busy bodies. When you're not working, you've got time. And what happens when you've got time? You get bored. <laughs> what happens when you get bored? You just start poking your nose in. You start meddling. You start interfering. You start wanting to backseat drive everyone else's life. Don't do that. Don't be a busybody. That's the first reason why. Second reason why. You should work so that you can eat. Verse 10. When we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. Don't feed him. (laughs) Verse 12. We command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. There's something to this idea of providing for yourself, being responsible for who you are and your own livelihood. Again, not talking about those who are unable to, for whatever cause, but those who are just happy to bludge. I mean, we've got a word for it, right? We call them bludgers. Sometimes it's a good word in our culture, most of the time it's not. The problem for us is that we've disconnected work from the function of living. In Australia, I, I I haven't looked up the statistics, but... I don't believe there are many people who starve to death. I don't, I don't know that there are many, right? If you're, if you're at the very, very, very bottom of society and you're homeless and outcast and you find yourself in trouble, at the end of the day, a hospital will take you in and feed you. And we, we, have, we have safety nets at the very bottom of society that provide. Our problem is that money has now become about wealth rather than about providing for yourself day to day. It's about creating a standard and a style of living rather than about being able to live. 
We've disconnected work from food. But here it is, right? Very straightforward. Don't enable the person who won't work. If they won't work, let them not eat. We'll come back to this idea a little bit more in a minute. Third reason why is so that you're not a burden to other people. Verse 8, again, we didn't work so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Now, there are times when it's appropriate to be a burden on others. My children are a burden on me. (laughs) And that's appropriate. That's right. I provide for my children. I provide for my wife, right? That's a right thing to do. But it would be a wrong thing if I didn't provide for any of them and all of us together just mooched off whoever we could. And fourthly then, is to shame people into action. Why would we cut them off so that they would see their mistakes, so that they may be ashamed and come back? What are we to do? Work quietly and help those around us who won't to see their sin, particularly brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? I think this is instruction within the church. This isn't a case of you see a beggar in the street, you say, well, actually, 2 Thessalonians 3 tells me I should stop talking to you and walk off. Right? That's not what it's talking about. There's other passages that deal with how we look after the needy. Now we are to work and we are to help our brothers and sisters in Christ to see when they are wrong. Why? Provide for ourselves so that we can eat, to help them see their mistake. How are we supposed to do it? Well, you're supposed to get on with it, do it quietly. We command, verse 12, and exhort such people, work quietly, provide for themselves. 1 Thessalonians 4, so 1 Thessalonians 4 puts it this way. In fact, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 10, we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, right? To make it your ambition, the NIV used to translate, make it your ambition to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. How are you supposed to do it? Head down, get on with it. Doesn't need a fanfare, doesn't need to be splashy and big and special. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Almost sounds like a a juxtaposition, doesn't it? Aim to just be okay. To get on with it, to work with your hands, to do what you need to, to provide. The gospel of the Lord Jesus changes our living patterns. It teaches us how to live God's way. And that includes... Valuing work rightly. Because you can value work too much or too little. I take it for the Thessalonians, their problem was that they valued work too little. Right? It's just a thing, we can choose to not do it, right? We don't need to, Jesus is coming back. I don't think that's the problem for most of us. Look, you might be sitting there today and feeling convicted by this word from God and if that's the case, then please act on it. And perhaps there are some among us who are more prone to not working. I don't really want to point fingers at people, but young adults who are just perfectly happy to mooch off their parents. And that feels uncomfortable to me. There are dull bludgers, right? There are those who are like, oh, the government's going to give me money. Why would I bother working? Now, again, I'm all for safety nets. I'm all for government assistance for those who need it while they're working out their lives. I'm not, I'm saying it's a bad thing, but to be someone who doesn't work, who could work, seems to run against this. 
Perhaps even for some of us, it might be reflected in us passing up work because we're waiting for the right job. If this isn't the job that's going to help my career progress, if this isn't where I'm trained or where I'm skilled, if this isn't a job that's going to give me satisfaction and meaning and joy in life, I mean, how much are we loading on our work at that point? To expect work to make me happy? No, work keeps me fed. Now, I think for most of us, the problem is the opposite one. We make too much of work. It becomes everything. We expect of our jobs the sorts of things that Jesus gives. I I want satisfaction. I want to feel like I'm changing the world in my job. I want to feel like I'm doing good. I want to progress into something that's going to bring me into glory. No, no, Jesus does those things. Your work feeds you. I I want to illustrate, if I can, with with children. You, You might not have children, that's okay, but I think the illustration will still work. You ask a really young child what they want to be when they grow up. You get some really interesting answers. Um, Edwina, uh, Oliver, who's now five, a a year or so ago, said to Edwina, when I grow up, I want to be a grandpa. Like, that's his vision of the future. What I I want to be is... Now, Edwina said, well, you're going to have to be a dad first. And he said, oh, no, I don't want that. It's too hard looking after all those kids. So, you know, he's got got some sort of vision of life. But isn't that interesting, right? You ask a little child. They have no sense. You ask anyone these days, oh, who, who are you? What do you do? And what answer are they going to give you? Their job. Who are you? I'm a plumber. I'm a teacher, I'm a government worker, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm an electrician, I'm a retail, I'm I'm art. No, you don't. That's what you do. That's your job. That's not who you are. And yet somehow our culture from so little, because you ask Eleanor or Sophia, who are seven and nine, what they want to be, and already they will say a teacher, an artist, a doctor, like they've caught it. This vision that our work is who we are is a real problem and it's so imbued in our culture that we can't even see it. We've uh, we've put it on a pedestal. And our actions and our decisions, moment by moment, prove it. Again, I'll I'll, I'll use children, again, I think it illustrates whether you have them or not. What I want for my children more than anything else, literally more than anything else, is that they will love Jesus their whole lives and die and go to heaven. That's that's what I want. Everything else is nothing in comparison to that. And yet my decisions day to day so rarely reflect that as a priority. Right, oh, should I stay home and study for this exam or go to youth group? Well, it's a very important exam. You haven't studied yet. God's people, spiritual growth, maturity and relationships. My examples of what I do, should I come home early to spend some devotional time with my family or work an extra hour to earn an extra 50 bucks so I can send them to a special school? Like, our decisions moment by moment show our priorities. The air we breathe all around us. This is our world. This is the rat race of our culture. It's so hard for us to not breathe it in. 
I mean, even our social pecking order is determined by what job you do, right? You walk into a room with two people there who you've never met before and you hear which job they both do and I can pretty much guarantee which one you will think more highly of should one of them tell you they're a doctor, specialist surgeon, and one of them tell you they're a garbo, right? Garbage collector. I can, you're going to wow and you're going to be like, eh, right? Like that's just... Why? All they're doing is jobs to put food in them. No, because we've transformed it into this idol that we worship. And look, I appreciate that there are lots of reasons for this. Right? We have massive financial burdens. We do. We are looking for good things in our lives and the lives of our children and the lives of those around us. And the way to get those good things is through the rat race. We want to provide for our future and make sure that we have the superannuation and the ability to live once we're older and retired, we, we want our children to have good things. We want to... But it's so easy in all of that, isn't it, to forget why we're here. Why are you still on this planet? To grow your bank balance? To pay off your mortgage? To retire and play golf? To, no. Not even to leave good things to your children or to your friends. That's not why you're here. You're still here because Jesus still needs to be glorified in this world. Because the gospel still needs to be spoken to more people. Because God is still working in you. I wonder if I could ask you a couple of diagnostic questions to help, to help you process where you sit with this. I haven't written them on yet. They're not on your outline. So you, you, as, as I, I've got one, two, three, four, I've got five. So one of them may stand out to you as we go. Maybe you can write them down. The first one really is the simple one. Are you willing to work? Now, that kind of comes to the heart of this. Are you idle? Well, then you need to go and do business with God. Here's question number two. How often do you suffer spiritually because of work. Now that can take all sorts of different forms. Right? Maybe you've missed gathering with God's people, your, your midweek Bible study, your church meeting, even just a social gathering because of work. And, and by work here, I'd include a broad range of things. Right? You might be a full-time student and studying is your work. Okay, so Maybe you were worried and you didn't pray. I think they're suffering spiritually because of work. Maybe you skipped your own planned devotional time. I just don't have time today. I'm, I'm not in the right brain space today. I'm not. Or perhaps you just couldn't serve others when you ought to have. That's suffering spiritually. How often do you suffer spiritually because of work? I think that might help to show some priorities. Question number three. How often is... I'm busy or I'm tired from busyness. An excuse. Could be an excuse for all sorts of things, particularly Christian things, particularly the things of God. I'd love to have a cup of tea with you and share the gospel, but I'm busy. I'd, I'd love to serve, but I'm tired. Question number four. When was the last time you considered your work an avenue for godliness? 
When was the last time you got up in the morning, you thought to yourself, I'm going to work today, and that's another chance to go and show Jesus. Again, that, if just that was our mindset every day, wouldn't, wouldn't it transform what we do? I'm going to work today because I've got to work, because I'm hungry, right? So that, that's good, I've got to go and work. But as I go, I don't forget that the reason I'm on earth is to glorify Him. So I'm going there to glorify Him. Let's go. Question number five. When was the last time that your work suffered for Jesus' sake? I think it's very easy for Jesus to suffer for our work's sake. When was the last time your work suffered? Jesus' sake. And I'll tell you what, if it all flows one way, if it's only ever flowing towards work, then we need to reassess our priorities. Look, I don't have a solution, right? I'm not up here today telling you that you've got to quit your job because your job is too demanding. Um, I, I, I don't know is the answer. Your circumstances are so different to mine and to each other's. But, but what I want to encourage you is to kind of work back up the chain. Okay, I need a job because whatever, right? I've got these financial pressures. I've got a family to care for. I have to be responsible and prudent. And th those are right things, so I need a job. But I tell you what, it is better to be godly and homeless. Better to be godly and bored and not have the wealth to entertain yourself. It's better to be godly and uneducated even than it is to be rich and a pagan. That's not simplistic, isn't it? Removing materialism from our hearts is not easy. <laughs> Again, if it's the air that we're breathing, how on earth are we going to do it? Can I, can I ask you please to set some time aside, to stop and consider your circumstances? What is it going to take for you to live a life of radical Christian discipleship? Where each day you get up and you think, today I'm living for Jesus. Today, what I'm going to do today, here's my calendar, here's the 15 things I've got planned for the day and here's how in each one of them I'm going to live for Jesus. We need, really, for a task this size, we need God, don't we? We need the God of peace to give us His peace. We need the God of power to set His might behind us. We need, well, what we've read, everything else, haven't we? God to be at work. And so as we finish, I want to remind you that the peace that we have comes from the God of grace. Have, have a look at the greeting at the end that Paul writes. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace, always, in every way, the Lord be with you. This is the Lord who by his power and might created the universe, who by his own will and choice saved you, who by the work of His Spirit transformed you to believe truth and not lies, and who even now holds you ready for the glory that will be revealed at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're feeling burdened by this task, remember, this is the Lord who is for you. Cast your cares upon Him and ask Him for His strength. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You again for this book and for the the marvellous teaching you give us at the end. We ask that you would strengthen the bruised and that you would bring low the proud. Thank you for your work and your power and your grace and your kindness that even this task that we have before us 
is one that comes with your power behind it. And so once again, Father, we pray that you would make us worthy of your calling. By your power, fulfill our every desire to do good and our work produced in faith, that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by us and us in him. Amen.